You're listening to Gradcast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And today we're joined by Liam Brown. Hi, Liam. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome, Liam. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your work and your program. Yeah, for sure. So. Um, I'm a second year uh, master's student in the Department of Biology at Western. My work focuses on antibiotic resistance in the environment. Um, I'm a Western student, but my lab is located at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's research facility here in London. So before the pandemic, I was um, regularly going into the lab there, but nowadays I do most of my work remotely. Tell us a little bit bit more about um the type of work you're doing around antibiotic resistance. That sounds really very relevant. I hear a lot about that on the news. Yeah, for sure. So um, I take an environmental angle to um, my research on antibiotic resistance. So when we think about antibiotic resistance, I think most people consider antibiotic resistance as largely a clinical problem, but I would argue that it's as much of an environmental problem as a clinical problem. And um, to get into my explanation for that, would I be able to give a brief history on antibiotic resistance in the environment? Absolutely. Okay, so um, so simply put, antibiotic resistance is the natural phenomenon that occurs when a bacterium either acquires or develops resistance to a harmful chemical in its environment. So an antibiotic is essentially just a chemical that's harmful to bacteria. And um, I would argue that antibiotic resistance can largely be thought of as an environmental problem. And we can also consider antibiotic resistance, at least the history of antibiotic resistance as kind of a history of chemical warfare. So it begins with the warfare of bacterium on bacterium beginning over 2 billion years ago um, and warfare of bacteria on humans after that, um, after the evolution of uh, humans. And then warfare of humans on bacteria for a period of time where we in the early 1900s really kicked off with our antibiotic drug discovery and the introduction of antibiotics to the drug market. And then after that, I would say we're back into a period of warfare of bacteria against humans again, where we are in a what's called a discovery void of antibiotics. So in order to fully understand antibiotic resistance as it pertains to humans today, we have to understand that antibiotic resistance is ancient. The story of antibiotic resistance begins at least 2 billion years ago. This is after the divergence of bacteria from the archaeal eukaryotic lineage, which occurred um, at least two and a half billion years ago. But antibiotic resistance began before the divergence of gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, which are often considered to be two uh, you know, uh, distinct ways of differentiating bacteria. And in order for bacteria to compete with one another for resources in this primordial ocean on Earth, they had to possess both offensive and defensive mechanisms. So the offensive mechanism that they are using to compete with each other is antibiotic production. And the defensive mechanism is antibiotic resistance. Remember, an antibiotic is just a chemical that's harmful to another bacterium. So in addition, these bacteria that produce the antibiotics must also have mechanisms to 
avoid dying from the same compound that they're producing. So you can see how this competition between these microbes could have quickly led to the evolution of diverse and elaborate mechanisms of antibiotic production and antibiotic resistance. So after this period of time of these microbes competing with one another and developing these resistance mechanisms and developing these different metabolic pathways to produce the um, antibiotics, um, we're moving into the time of chemical warfare of bacteria on humans about 300,000 years ago um, and uh, moving to very recently. So during this period, humans attempted to treat infection with a variety of like herbal remedies mixed with ritualistic and spiritualistic practices. And um, from this time until the early 1900s, when the germ theory of disease had begun to gain traction, a bacterial infection was basically a death sentence if your body couldn't fight the infection. So in this period of chemical warfare of bacteria on humans, there was a clear winner and it was the bacteria. And then in 1911, the tide began to turn. So the first antibiotic called arsphenamine came to the drug market as a treatment for syphilis. And it was actually a synthetic antibiotic, which means that it was made in a laboratory and it was not discovered in a microorganism. Then in 1942, benzyl penicillin from the drug class of penicillins, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, came to the drug market during the um, Second World War. And that was for treatment of a number of bacterial infections, including pneumonia and strep throat. And over a billion units of penicillin actually accompanied soldiers onto the beaches of Normandy in World War II. It saved many, many lives. And these discoveries ushered in the golden age of antibiotic drug discovery, which is typically described as the years from 1930 to 1960, when there was a massive new discovery of classes of antibiotics, many of these from environmental um, bacteria. So, um, because of the overconsumption and the misuse of antibiotics during this period of time in, in both healthcare and agriculture, antibiotic resistance quickly became widespread. Um, penicillin resistance was first observed in Staph aureus soon after the drug came to the market. And today, nearly all Staph aureus strains are resistant to penicillin and many more are becoming resistant to methicillin um, as many people might know, um, often called as um, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And some are becoming even resistant to the drug of last resort for treatment of this microbe, uh, vancomycin. So to make matters worse, we are in a uh, drug discovery void right now. The most recent class of antibiotics to have reached the market was discovered in 1987, 34 years ago. So um, we are in a discovery void right now. No new major antibiotic classes have come to the market since then. So where my work comes in is I'm investigating the um, environmental contributions of micropollutants to antibiotic resistance in the environment because antibiotic resistance can um, largely be considered an environmental problem as people get infections in the environment. So when you go to the clinic with an infection, the way that you acquired that microbe is from some interaction with the environment, whether it's from a terrestrial or aquatic ecosystem like soil or contaminated water, um, all those microbes are coming from the environment. So we have to think about this, this flow of bacteria 
from the environment into the clinic. And my work focuses on the agricultural side of that. Um, and I could talk a little bit about um, the experiments that were running at Agriculture Canada and their relevance to, um, to the problem today. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I, I really liked your overview there. You're really putting your work in context of history, basically. <laughs> um, I'm kind of interested. Um, I don't know. I don't know nearly as much history of the work I do. <laughs> and I think a lot of people sit down, they, they start their graduate program and they, and then they kind of do basically what the professor says at the beginning. And then they get interested as they go, but they don't necessarily know the, all the context. I'm wondering um, what got you interested in this lab and this work and, and how did you, how'd you come to understand all that history? Yeah, so I, I was introduced to um, Dr. Topps Laboratory um, during my undergrad degree at Western um, in genetics. I was doing the science internship program and that happens during your, between your third and fourth year. You get to take a year from um, kind of your intense uh, academic studies and then, do, and then do some experience in the field. And um, I was lucky enough to get a placement at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, which is just here in London. So it was really convenient for me. And um, it was in a microbiology lab. And uh, to be honest, I had no uh, real microbiology experience before that, except in one of the second year courses that teaches a little bit about um, some like a cloning in E. coli, but that's kind of the extent of it. And so it was a really steep learning curve. But as I got into the work, I really began to enjoy the, the bench work that I was doing, the problems that I was working on and the people that I was working with. And after I worked in that lab, um, I worked in Dr. Ann Simon's lab at uh, Western University studying um, social behavior in um, Drosophila. And um, after that work, I decided that I wanted to get back into um, my work with antibiotic resistance. I think just because it was my, <laughs> my, first, uh, my first experience, it left some kind of imprint on me. So I went back to that work. And um, to answer your question about the, you know, the, the entanglement of my work with the history of antibiotic resistance, I think that understanding the history of antibiotic resistance is really important to understand how we can go about tackling this problem today. How do you think, what are some of the ways you think we can go about tackling this problem today? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of work being done on the side of antibiotic um, uh, synthesis right now. So um, drug discovery is still very important where people are pulling these microbes out of the environment and looking to see if they're effective against um, uh, uh, inhibiting other microbes. But there's also a lot of work done on making new antibiotics um, and also um, modifying existing antibiotics to make them more effective against bacteria that have since become resistant in the clinic. And people are also um, using new techniques to uh, do things like attach proteins to antibiotics to kind of um, make them more, more effective in the human body. I'm not really well versed in that area, but there's a lot of exciting work being done right now. So, so there are different methods of, of, of developing um, antibiotics themselves. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, is, is your work uh, around, 
you said so many people are, you know, trying to work out these different methods. Um, is your work directly on producing a new antibiotic or, or um, how does your work fit in there? Yeah, so um, my work is not to do with um, antibiotic drug discovery. My work falls more under the, the uh, umbrella of antibiotic surveillance in the environment. So the reason why it's important to look at what's in the environment in terms of in terms of antibiotic resistant bacteria is because as I mentioned, these bacteria are able to find their ways to people. And um, especially in, in the case of agriculture where, um, so I guess I should maybe talk a little bit about um, the type of experiment that um, has been performed uh, in our lab and the, the work that I'm doing right now. So there are, a compound, uh, there are compounds called biosolids which are materials that are produced when a wastewater treatment plant uh, separates wastewater into liquids and solids. And these solids are uh, then treated in order to reduce pathogens and odor in the uh, solid material. And um, in Ontario and actually throughout Canada, um, biosolids are used as an agricultural amendment and fertilizer. So they, they can improve the soil quality and they can also, um, improve the like the nutrients that are going into the soil and the soil structure. So um, for certain crops like corn and hay and uh, cereals and some legumes, um, these biosolids can be really beneficial for introducing um, more nutrients into the soil. So they're, they're currently used in over 80% of all Ontario municipalities. And um, they're estimated right now to account for um, less than 1% of the total um, food production in Ontario of crops grown in these, these soil treated with biosolids, but they're still important because it's a lot of um, material that's um, going into soil. So my work um, in this area is essentially to investigate whether it's um, safe from an antibiotic resistance perspective to be applying large amounts of these materials to agricultural soil. In the past, our lab has performed experiments where we've looked at micropollutants and biosolids and micropollutants just being small molecules. So um, when we've looked into this problem, we found that biosolids contain a relatively um, larger amount of a class of antibiotics called macrolide antibiotics than other micropollutants in the biosolids. And it turns out that these macrolide antibiotics are pretty good at binding to the solid particles that go through the wastewater treatment process. So the concern for us is that these macrolide antibiotics, which by the way, are used quite um, prolifically, they've been classified as critically important by the World Health Organization because of their, their use as um, uh, uh, kind of sole treatments for some, some bacterial infections like campylobacteriosis and community acquired pneumonia. These macrolide antibiotics that are going into the wastewater treatment plants, we're concerned that they could be carrying over to biosolids. And then when we introduce, or when the farmers introduce these biosolids to, um, to fields, um, these, these macrolide antibiotics could be transferring from these biosolids into the agricultural soil. And then when you grow crops in that soil, these, um, these antibiotics could be influencing the, what we call the collective resistome all of the resistance genes and all of these bacteria in the soil. And um, these could be transferred to things like leafy vegetables. And um, these could be um, uh, transferred to humans through the, the food consumption process. 
have you found any ways that these biosolids can be stopped in terms of transferring over into the agricultural soil? Um, it's, it's a good question. It just seems that the, um, these macrolide antibiotics are pretty good at binding to the, the solid material in the biosolids. And once they're, once they're bound, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, not really my research area, unfortunately. So, I mean, you, maybe you can't, uh, you can't remove the specific resistant bacteria is the, is the best method, maybe remove them all. Can you remove all the bacteria or is that needed for the, the, the function of the biosolid? Oh, so um, I, should, I should maybe say these, these biosolids have gone through a treatment process where they have been treated with some sort of uh, disinfection process. So the, the goal of the wastewater treatment is to disinfect um, the water and to basically separate that from the solids. And ideally by doing that, you are removing a lot of the pathogens that would be otherwise included in that solid material. So when it's treated and then it becomes, uh, and then eventually it becomes the biosolids, um, they shouldn't have um, a lot of bacteria in them and they shouldn't have any pathogens in them. However, antibiotic resistance genes and the uh, pharmaceutical compounds that are in the solid material are a different matter. So when you inject that material into the environment, it's possible that these pharmaceutical compounds could be having an effect on the resident soil microbiome, the bacteria that are already present in the soil, and then that could be influencing antibiotic resistance in that way. And we know um, actually that um, when we introduce macrolide antibiotics to soil, based upon previous experiments in our lab in agricultural soil, when we introduce macrolide antibiotics in a realistic exposure scenario, that is like an exposure scenario that you would be likely to find from these biosolids, um, you don't see much of an effect. We, we actually haven't detected um, any effect at all on differences in resistance gene abundances in, in soil bacteria. However, when we introduce antibiotics, these macrolide antibiotics at a unrealistically high concentration, that is a concentration above what we would expect to see in biosolids, we've noticed, um, we noticed increases in several antibiotic resistance genes and things called mobile genetic elements, which are pieces of DNA that are really good at shuffling other pieces of DNA. And um, bacteria have a really interesting way of transferring genes from each other, um, tr uh, sorry, transferring genes between each other. And that's called horizontal gene transfer. So they're really good at exchanging pieces of DNA with each other. And um, these mobile genetic elements play a role in that. So are, are you saying that the resistance is actually being developed in basically in the field? Uh, it's out there. It's not like in the biosolid beforehand. It's later when you've got yeah, you know, antibiotics in the biosolid that um, then interact with the the bacteria in the in the soil in the field when you know agriculture is happening and crops are growing. It's under under the soil there where antibi uh, an antibiotic resistance is actually developing. Yes, that's that's the risk scenario that we're concerned about. So you you said that uh, you've done like a a little test of it in the lab you said like you've got agricultural soil like how, how does that even work do you do you literally have to go and get soil from 
somebody's some from a farmer's field and then you call it agricultural soil because it's exactly what you take take from the field or like you can you just buy buy soil from the store like like anyone would buy soil to like do some gardening mm-hmm. at home and call it call it agricultural <laughs> soil yeah <laughs> how so do, how do you I, do these tests i i don't believe we use uh canadian tire soil i think um <laughs> we we use um a, a type of soil that's commonly used in canadian agriculture and what we've done um 10 years ago is we filled a bunch of these soil microplots on on the london research center's property um these soil microplots are like three by three um, meter um, fiberglass rimmed plots in the ground and we fill them with soil and each year to some of the plots we expose them to different types of micropollutants in the case of my experiment I'm working with the soil that was exposed to these macrolide antibiotics and we crop the so we grow soybeans in these um, plots in order to kind of recycle the nutrients in the plots each year um, and we also apply annually whatever type of micropollutant we're studying. And then we look at what happens when we do that. And so previous work in my lab has um, looked at that and found increased gene abundances of these antibiotic resistance genes and these mobile genetic elements, but only in the plots that received an unrealistically high exposure scenario of these macrolides. And so my work is to expand on that previous work that's been done and to investigate if we've missed something potentially in the realistic exposure scenario to make sure that these biosolids um, really are safe to be applying in this context to agricultural soil. So your initial results basically said, look, we get, you know, of course, resistance can be, can develop, uh, but the circumstance in which resistance is going to develop in this agricultural soil is where there's so much of the antibiotic, it's not, it's not actually going to happen in the field, but now you want to go back and just make sure like, okay, we, 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 we know that it can happen, but the levels in which it actually happens is not, not realistically going to be happening in the field. Let's just double check the realistic levels and be sure there's no sneaking resistance left there. (laughs) How how would it be possible that you missed it the first time? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, one of the techniques that we use to investigate it the first time, and when I say we, I'm using the royal we, I wasn't involved in this (laughs) experimental process. I came in after. Um, the technique is called quantitative PCR. PCR is a term you might have been hearing from a lot of the COVID-19 testing, whereby you amplify pieces of DNA. And the quantitative PCR is just a process that's used in order to get kind of a relatively, um, you know, kind of a quantitative amount of that DNA in any given sample. So we use this technique called quantitative PCR in order to estimate the amount of DNA that is rising above the detection limit of the device that we're using and um, seeing if that, if that DNA is rising in response to treatment exposure. The problem with this technique is that it doesn't take into account a few things. First of all, you can only target DNA with this technique that you have pre-designed um, DNA primers for, which are uh, smaller pieces of DNA that allow you to target those specific regions of DNA in the amplification process. So you can only look for gene targets that you have previously set up your um, experiment to look for. Um, As I've mentioned before, antibiotic resistance is ancient and incredibly diverse. So there are 
many, many, many different resistance genes, especially in soil, because it's incredibly diverse. So it's impossible to look at all of these resistance genes at once just by doing something like quantitative PCR. You have to do something that looks at the kind of the, the bigger picture. And so that um, bigger picture, that technique that we use to get there is called total metagenomic sequencing. And it's when you sequence all of the DNA in an environmental sample. And so um, my work has, look, has performed total metagenomic DNA sequencing. We've also performed sequencing of the, um, it's called 16S RDNA. So it's a specific region in the bacterial genome that is giving you information about the identity of the bacteria. So we have the total metagenomic sequencing, which is the big picture look. We have the 16S RDNA sequencing, which is the community composition of the bacteria to see if the bacterial composition is changing in response to treatment exposure. And we've also done targeted sequencing of a specific mobile genetic element a DNA sequence that can move other DNA sequences that we're concerned about. And that DNA sequence is called a class one integron. And they're very prevalent in um, a lot of clinical isolates. And they're also prevalent in the environment. They're really good at shuffling pieces of DNA, especially antibiotic resistance genes between different bacteria. So my work is kind of more in, in, the area of a, in the era of a pandemic, it's more on the computational biology side because I'm analyzing this biological sequence data and I'm trying to decipher meaning from the pieces of DNA that I'm looking at on the computer. So you mentioned um, that you, you have soil that you put into these little plots. Where do you get the soil that, that, you, that you use? Um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I don't know where that soil is coming from. They were established a, a decade ago, so. Mystery soil. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery soil, yeah. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, you're, I guess you're, you're not as interested in, in the type of soil. I thought that maybe agricultural soil was a, was a special type of soil of sorts, but it seems like, a, you know, the actual soil that's being used may not be necessarily the most important it's more important what's in the soil and that's that's been like micromanaged for the past 10 years um uh really carefully and now you don't even really have to get your hands dirty uh physically because you have the data already uh that someone i guess did you extract the data originally or so the so in terms of the soil sampling we have a really excellent, hardworking uh, soil technician who actually does that. His name is Roger. And he goes out and he performs a lot of our field experiments. And then he uh, he's able to bring those samples and we're able to store them um, long-term in cold storage. And when we need to have a look at them, we have our own students in our lab and we have um, other technicians that look into the microbiology and into the molecular biology of the soils that we have archived over this long period of time each year. Um, in terms of the um, in terms of the experiments that I've done, I did the um, DNA extraction and the um, 
the preparation for DNA sequencing for one of the sequencing experiments. And I've also generated DNA for the other sequencing experiments. So I was able to luckily do a lot of that work before the pandemic um, kind of hit and we had to move out of the lab. So it was actually really good timing for my research because as soon as I had, to, as soon as we went into lockdown, basically I had this DNA sequence data that I could work with. And I've just been working with that data since and I'm get, getting a new um, sequence data coming in. So um, that's really cool. And it, I, I'm glad to hear that you are able to do a lot of your work uh, without being affected by the, the current uh, debacle going on worldwide. Um, I guess uh, my last question here, because we're, we're just about out of time is, um, you know, it, it sounds like you, you know, you're really being thorough here. You know, this was a study that was done before and you're um, building on those results from before to just be a, a thousand percent sure uh, that, you know, of the safety of the situation and, and really be sure that we're not, we're not contributing to the development of um, antibiotic resistance, uh, resistance development. Um, with this method, do you think you, you think you, you'll have covered all your bases? Uh, how's it looking so far? Um, the, the data are looking pretty good in terms of having overall coverage of what we would expect to see in the data. So my, my results that I've obtained from this different type of sequencing align with our previous results in terms of the, the types of antibiotic resistance genes that are being amplified in the unrealistically high exposure scenario. So because, of, uh, because my results align with that, it gives me further confidence that my results are true in that um, we are in fact detecting the, the big picture of what's happening. And we are finding that in the realistic exposure scenario, the sub milligram per kilogram uh, concentration of antibiotics, these biosolids are probably not having an effect on the resistance gene abundance in agricultural soil. However, in an unrealistically high exposure scenario, which is a hundred times higher than the realistic dose, they are having an effect. So in cases where you may have this introduction of an unrealistically high exposure scenario, um, we may have cause for concern about what's happening in the soil. Wow, well, this is a really, uh, clearly a really important work to be done. So I'm glad that you're doing it and you're working hard on it. Um, we are just about out of time. So uh, maybe can you tell us if someone wants to find out, look into a little bit deeper what work you're, you're currently on, working on, uh, where would you send them on the internet? Yeah, so um, if you're interested in work that I'm doing, you can uh, either find me on ResearchGate, you can just search Liam Brown and maybe Western University. Um, if you also have questions about my research that are more um, targeted, you're welcome to email me at lbrow55 at uwo.ca. Well, thank you, Liam. This has been an excellent uh, overview of your work, and we've had a chance to get our hands dirty a little bit, as it were, in the land of uh, antibiotic resistance. My name's Elizabeth Moeller. I've been your host today, and I've been joined by my co-host, Ariel Frame, and today we've been talking to Liam Brown. You've been listening to GradCast, podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. You can find us on the radio, or if you'd like to check us out at gradcast.ca, you can find us on the web. We also have select episodes available on YouTube. You can 
find us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe you want to get in touch or be on the show. Email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.